Hey, if you've got your Bibles, and I know many of you do, I'm going to invite you to go to the New Testament book of Romans. We are in Romans today. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. It's early on in the New Testament. Uh, you might even want to get, if you don't have your Bible, that's fine. Go ahead and get out your phone. You can pull up uh, the Bible app. Uh, if you've got a tablet, uh, that's fine too. Um, but uh, we do want to encourage you to be bringing your Bibles uh, each and every week. Well, if you're a guest uh, tuning in either online or live with us this morning, uh, you have come on a great weekend. We are starting a brand new sermon series called Counterfeit. Counterfeit. We're going to explore for the next few weeks what it means uh, to look at uh, counterfeit Christianity. Counterfeit Christianity. So this morning, I thought uh, I would show you if I were to hold up these two $100 bills, you might look at these $100 bills and go, huh, they look pretty similar. But you'd be wrong. Because if you took this $100 bill down to Walmart, you could buy $100 worth of stuff. But if you took this $100 bill down to Walmart you'd be arrested. Because this, of course, is a counterfeit $100 bill. It's completely worthless. It has no value. But on the surface, you, if you look at these two things, you might think, well, it, it looks similar. But the nuances, the subtleties, the differences in what makes something real and authentic and something fake, something that is a lie. And that's really true when it comes to counterfeit Christianity. Things look similar on the surface. They might even sound very, very similar and authentic. But this is how Satan, the enemy of Jesus Christ, lurks about among us. And Jesus tells us that we need to be on our guard. In his most famous sermon... As Jesus was preaching, he said these words, Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. Kind of go, whoa. That's a little scary, right? I thought we need to spend some time kind of unpacking this because it's easy to be fooled. It's easy to be duped into all the ways in which the counterfeit uh, truths of the world and even in the church are running rampant and can fool us and they lie to us. So for the next few weeks, we're going to be a little bit on our guard. Now what you need to know uh, is uh, there are dozens of these counterfeit claims. These are actually called heresies. And heresy simply means a false teaching. But we're going to look at the heresies, and we're going to spend also sometimes looking, some time looking at orthodoxy, which means true teaching. And we spent the first 12 weeks of 2021 looking at the Christian story. Remember, many of you were here for a long story short. That was orthodoxy, the true teachings of the church. And this is why it's so important to start with the truth first. And then when you've spent some time in the truth, we also need to spend some time looking at these heresies or these false teachings. 
And so for the next uh, seven weeks, uh, we are going to look at what I think are the seven top most pervasive heresies in the church today. And I want to help you to be able to spot them so that you are not duped, so that you are not lied to, and you buy into something that is not true and base your life on something that is absolutely false, these heresies. Uh, Today we're going to talk about the, the heresy of Pelagianism. We mostly know it as works salvation. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for this new day that you've given to us. God, an opportunity to worship you, an opportunity to serve you, an opportunity, God, to receive the sacrament of Holy Communion, to be in fellowship with one another, and God, uh, an opportunity to open your word, to consider what you might have to say to us in this place, in this time, right here, right now. So God, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable, for you are indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, nearly 30 years ago, uh, my wife Cindy and I were living in the Los Angeles area. Uh, She was teaching school, and uh, I was a seminary student, uh, first-year seminary student, and uh, we just loved living in Southern California, uh, moving from uh, Minnesota. It was was a great adventure. And shortly after we got to uh, the Pasadena area uh, where we were living, um, my wife's friend called her up, a childhood friend, uh, a young woman by the name of Jenny Jacobson. She said, hey, I live in San Diego, and I'm wondering if you guys want to come and visit. We're there. Who doesn't want to go to the beach? San Diego, right? And so uh, we drove down to San Diego for a weekend uh, to spend some time with Jenny and uh, get to know uh, her, her friends a little bit there and a chance for Cindy and Jenny to catch up a little bit. So we had lunch together. And uh, Cindy and Jenny wanted to do girl time, which was A-OK by me. I said, I'm going to go down to the boardwalk and just kind of people watch. I like to people watch. And if you've ever people watched in uh, Southern California, it's a very interesting place uh, to people watch. And so there I am, uh, hanging out at the boardwalk uh, in San Diego, uh, watching people. And off in the distance, I see this group of young people uh, having conversations with people doing what they do in San Diego. And some of them had their Bibles, and they were talking to them. And here I am, a first-year seminary student, and I thought, this ought to be interesting. And so I just watched them as they slowly came and approached me. And pretty soon, before you know it, I had one of those young guys uh, look at me eye to eye, and he said to me, if you were to die today, how confident are you that you will go to heaven and be with God forever? I thought, I can handle this question. And so I shared with him uh, that I was a first-year seminary student uh, just up the road uh, at a very prestigious uh, evangelical uh, Christian seminary, that I was studying, preparing, and training uh, to be a missionary, to actually bring Jesus to people, to lands and countries and places uh, far away, people who didn't know Jesus. I shared uh, with this young man that I had just spent a year serving uh, with the homeless in Washington, D.C., uh, working with a church organization uh, to help uh, people uh, down and out uh, uh, get back on their feet and give them a little bit of hope and, and certainly some Jesus. 
I shared with this young man that I attended a Christian college. I was really involved uh, with FCA and Campus Crusade while I was uh, there on campus. I shared with him I was really involved with my Lutheran church growing up, um, that uh, we did all sorts of uh, wonderful youth activities, and I shared with him uh, that I was fortunate enough, blessed enough, uh, to grow up in a Christian home uh, of the Lutheran flavor, and uh, it was just a a wonderful uh, upbringing for me. And after some time, and I had kind of listed off my Christian resume, he looked at me and said, those, those are great things. But unless you surrender your life to Jesus Christ, that is the only way that you will truly have the confidence and know that you can be with God forever, Jesus for all eternity. I was mortified. Have you ever just wanted to run away because you were so embarrassed? That was that moment for me. Nearly 30 years ago, and I remember it like yesterday. I mean, I grew up Lutheran. I knew all about grace, right? And my goodness, here I was in San Diego, California, being called out for my heresy, my works salvation. It was one of those moments that I'll never forget. You know, the good thing uh, that I want to encourage you all this morning is this idea of works salvation is actually a very old heresy. It goes back to actually the 4th century, uh, a guy by the name of Pelagius. And he was actually a Christian monk and a teacher in the church. He was an aesthetic. He was a monk. He was a teacher, and he taught the Bible and what it meant to be a faithful person in the life of the church. And I'm going to give it to you really condensed this morning. One of Pelagius' main tenets is that human beings have the ability that we have the capacity to do good things so that we can earn our way to God, to live with God in heaven forever. Now, you might, you might be thinking to yourself this morning, duh, everybody gets that, right? That's not true. That's heresy. That's a false teaching. And that's kind of where I've always been at with this as well. But remember, the thing about counterfeit, it's the subtleties. It's the tiny little differences that we don't always see on the surface. I think most of us would hear this idea of work salvation, of Pelagianism, and go, yeah, that's not me. But here's the subtlety to it. It's actually called semi-Pelagianism. And what it simply means is that, oh, I believe in grace. I believe Jesus died on the cross for me. I believe I need to surrender my life and allow him to be the reign and rule of my life. I get it. But I'm going to help God just a little bit. You might even thought to yourself when you came to worship this morning, I'm going to church. I'm going to worship. I wonder if God sees me. God, do I get credit for going to worship this morning? I mean, there's a lot of people not in worship this morning, but I'm here. 
You might even feel good about that, getting yourself out of bed and coming to worship. I believe in grace, but I went to church, God. Or I believe in grace. I helped at Midwest Food Bank this week. Dang, God, do you see what I'm doing? I believe in the grace of God. But I'm reading through my Bible this year. Hey, God, I'm reading my Bible cover to cover this year. Pretty cool, huh? Pretty neat. Anybody feeling good about reading through your Bible this year? Nobody's hands go up, right? I've just shamed you. (laughs) Hey, God, I believe in your grace. I thank you for Jesus. I thank you for his son dying on the cross. But I made a pledge to Faith Lutheran Church. I give regularly to support the ministries of this church. Pretty good, huh, God? This is semi-Pelagianism. You you hear where I'm going with this? We believe in the grace of God. But we just got to add on a little bit. And here's what I want to tell you this morning. And Jeff kind of beat me to it on the front end. It's bad news. All those works, they're good. Those are good things to do, and I would encourage you to keep doing those things. Read your Bible, give to the church, serve at Midwest Food Bank, come to worship. Those are all great things, but they do not bring you one inch closer to spending eternity with Jesus Christ in heaven. That's the bad news, folks, right? But semi-Pelagianism, we think to ourselves, if I just help God out a little bit so he can see some of the things I'm up to. What you need to know is that a Pelagius was actually branded a heretic at the Council of Carthage in 418. Boom, how would you like to be known as that? I'm the heretic from the church, the Council of Carthage. You know, the interesting thing, I, I, I certainly want to be hard on Pelagius, but um, this idea of works salvation It actually precedes uh, Pelagius. It goes back actually to the early church. People have been wrestling with this idea of grace plus since the very beginning of the church. Jesus died on the cross for us. And then last weekend, of course, we celebrated the resurrection that Jesus has conquered death. And then the church, the disciples, The Jesus followers got together and said, now what do we do? How do we live our lives? We believe in this grace, this gift, this goodness of Jesus Christ, but now what do we do? And they struggled mightily with works salvation, grace plus, if you will. So onto the scene comes the Apostle Paul. And if you know anything about the Apostle Paul, he was a Jew by background, But he was a very pious Jew. He was a very faithful Jew. He was a very orthodox Jew. Uh, The Apostle Paul knew the, the Old Testament backwards and forward. And he not just knew it, but he followed it. He lived it. If ever there was somebody who followed God's word and was obedient to God's word, it was the Apostle Paul. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. And yet on the day... The Apostle Paul met the resurrected Christ. Everything changed. 
in that moment, Paul realized that all of his good deeds, all of his works, he said, they count for nothing. They count for garbage. They're a waste of time as compared to the righteousness of God. That's Paul. You know, Paul wrote about this over and over and over throughout the New Testament. The Apostle Paul wrote about a third of the new, te- half of the New Testament. And time and time again, as you read Paul's letters to the different churches in the New Testament, this word grace keeps coming up. Paul keeps talking about grace. Grace this, grace that, over and over and over. It's like, my goodness. It's like the Apostle Paul is obsessed with grace. And he was, because it was such a big deal to him. And Paul's most famous work in the New Testament is called Romans, which is simply a letter to the church in Rome. Paul's trying to explain to the church, to the early Christians, this idea this idea of grace and what it means to be a Jesus follower. It's kind of the, the, the magnum opus of understanding the doctrine of the Christian faith. What's it all about? At some point in time, I want to encourage you to just sit down in one sitting and read all 16 chapters of Romans because it is amazing. It's brilliant. It's going to make your head explode. It's dense, but it is wonderful, and it is filled with grace. But the interesting thing about the book of Romans is the Apostle Paul does not start with grace. He didn't go there. The, the, the chapter one does not say Jesus loves you and died for you. Grace upon grace. The first three chapters of the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul is explaining the human condition. And over and over and over, he tells us, like Jeff did this morning, how bad we are how corrupt we are, how sinful we are. On a day that you're feeling really good about yourself, read Romans 1, 2, and 3. You will be humbled. Because Paul tells it like it is. Talks about the human condition of grace, this free gift that he gives to us. And here's the bottom line, what I want you to hear this morning as we start, uh, before we read the word. Your mom lied to you. She did. You were not a good boy. You are not special. You don't even have good intentions. Your mom lied. You're wicked. You're evil. You're corrupt. You don't even want to do good. That's the truth. And hopefully your mom didn't say that to you. But Paul says it to us. Because it's true. So if you're in Romans, we're going to go to uh, Romans 3, beginning with verse 10. This is how Paul uh, explains it to us, and he's quoting uh, the Old Testament, primarily the book of Psalms, uh, but also the prophet Isaiah. Paul says this as he looks at the human condition at you and me. He says, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands and no one who seeks God. 
all have turned away. They have become, uh, they have together become worthless. And there was no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. In the way of peace, they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Paul is like a courtroom uh, lawyer, and he's handing down a 14-point indictment on you and on me. He says, you are corrupt. You are evil. You are under the law. And then Paul rests his case. He says, no one has a right to even open your mouth. It is so obvious that you are guilty of your sin. Don't even open your mouth. Just keep it closed. Don't even argue with me. How many of you ever said that to your kids before? Don't argue with me. That's how obvious it is for the Apostle Paul. There's no rebuttal. There's no opportunity to refute the charges Guilty, the Apostle Paul says. And did you notice the language he uses, kind of repetition over and over? He repeats several words. All and none. How many are righteous? None. How many of us are guilty? All. Not much wiggle room there, is there? It's pretty brutal. Paul lays all this down. Now, I think oftentimes, let's just be honest, we think about our sin, and we're like, yeah, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner, but is my sin really all that bad? And we tend to compare our sin to other people, right? I mean, this is just what we do when it comes to sin. This morning, uh, we could, I, I could say, okay, everybody stand up. We're going to line up uh, according to uh, how sinful we are. And those of you who are the least sinful, you're going to stand closest to the altar. And those of you who are really sinful, you're going to stand down by the restrooms, right? And we, we could just have this conversation all morning long and to discuss our sin. And, and I'd compare your sin and you'd compare my sin. And, and we kind of jockey in the line, right? That's how we do it. We think, oh, my sins, yeah, it's bad, but, but I'm not as bad as my college roommate, right? We, we think other people, we look at our sin and we minimize it. We look at other people's sin and go, man, I can't believe they did that. This is how we do it. We compare our sin with one another. But here's the problem. God doesn't grade our sin on a curve. It's pass-fail, folks. You're either sinful or you're not. And sin, according to the Bible, leads to death. 
You're either dead or you're not dead. There's no such thing as dead, deader, and deadest. You're dead. Any sin in your life, I don't care if you're by the altar, by the restrooms, you're dead. You're sunk. You have no hope. So Paul's laying out here. Can you put the accuser up there? There we go. So I thought maybe we would just close in prayer this morning. Or we could keep reading. What do you guys want to do? I want to keep reading. If you're feeling a little convicted, you should. That's the point of this letter. And then Paul continues. But now... These may be the two sweetest words in all the Bible. You're guilty. You're dead. You're convicted. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. What Paul is saying in that sentence, you can back it up, There we go. What Paul is saying is the law that was given to the prophets and to the lawgivers. There's another way. There's another way. And we ought to be on the edge of our seat going, what's the way? You know, if ever there was a drum roll in the Bible, this would be the place where you would just want to do a drum roll because you should be thinking to yourself right now, okay, I'm dead uh, in the law, but God has provided a new opportunity to be in a right relationship with God. And so can we, can we do a drum roll, Dan? I think Here it is. The righteousness is given through faith in Christ Jesus to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, which you ought to hear in that. There is no difference between the religious person who goes to church on Sunday morning and the slacker who's sitting at Starbucks this morning, right? No difference. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by grace. The reformer Martin Luther, there he is. He said, these Bible verses, Romans 3.23 to 3.25, are the most important, the most significant Bible verses in all of Scripture. Profound impact on Martin Luther as he read these verses. In fact, when Luther first read these verses, uh, it was in 1515, couple years before the Protestant Reformation began. And this is what he wrote about Romans 3, uh, 23, 24, and 25. Night and day, 
I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just will live by faith. Then I grasped the truth of the justice of God. His righteousness comes through grace and sheer mercy as he justifies us by faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through the open doors into paradise. The whole scripture took on new meaning. This passage of the Apostle Paul became to me a gateway to heaven. In fact, this is the point in uh, Martin Luther's life where he says, I was converted. This is when I became a Jesus follower. This is how significant he says, I was reborn. Now keep in mind, Martin Luther had been in the church a long time. At this point in time, Martin Luther had earned a PhD in Christian theology. And he was a professor teaching at a seminary. And he said in that moment, up until then, he didn't know Jesus. He missed it. Because most of Luther's life, until this moment, he read these texts. It was all about works. Luther believed in grace. He believed in the grace of Jesus Christ for sure. But Luther, like you and me, and standing out there on the pier in uh, San Diego, California, I had a list. Luther had a list that we was always lifting up to God over and over and over. And it tormented him. Because he never could live up to his list and doing enough good stuff. It was this heresy of grace plus. And in that moment, Luther said, I'm free. The chains have come off. I am free. I'm done with this grace plus. I'm living by grace alone. You've heard that phrase before in Latin, right? Sola gratia. Grace alone. And Luther couldn't contain himself. And he would run around telling everybody all about the grace of Jesus Christ and the freedom that he experienced. Now, the problem is that Luther continued to work and serve in the church. And he got frustrated. People were like, oh, it's great, Luther. Glad you're feeling so good about yourself. But it's grace plus your work still matter. So on October 31st, 1517, Luther had had enough. He walked down a cobblestone street in Wittenberg, Germany, pounded 95 statements on the church, and said, we got a problem. We've got too much grace plus in the church. That began the Protestant Reformation. Do you hear where we're going with this? Romans 3, 23, 24, and 25 were the spark plug which started the Protestant Reformation. These verses were so transformational in Luther's life and in the life of the world, of the church today. And people continue to struggle with this idea of semi-Pelagianism, this idea of grace plus works. And it drove Luther crazy. So I'm going to read it one more time for you because I think we need to hear it again. And I want to unpack just a couple things quickly. We're going to go to uh, this righteousness is given through faith in Christ Jesus to all who believe. 
There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Now, I want to camp out on this because there's a lot of big words in here. And I think sometimes we hear this, we're like, oh, I don't really know what he's saying here, the Apostle Paul, right? There's some big theological, churchy words, if you will. And so just let me real briefly explain what uh, three words mean here. Justified, redemption, and atonement. We're going to start with justified. This word shows up about 30 times in the New Testament, about half the time in the book of Romans. This, This idea, this concept of justified. Justified is a legal term. It's a declaration that someone has been made right, that someone, a determination has been made that you are justified. You're made to be in relationship with God. God justifies you. Says you're good. You're good. You know, how I like to think of this word is uh, just if I'd never sinned. That's how God looks at you. If you are justified, God looks at you and interacts with you just as if you had never sinned. That's pretty cool, I think. God makes us, we say God makes us right with him. That's what it means to be justified. Redemption. The idea of redemption, we know this a little bit, right? The idea of a redemption in their culture, in their time, it comes from the slave trade. And a person who was a slave would be redeemed. They were bought with a price. And they would be redeemed. There was a transaction that would take place. And a slave who was viewed as somebody who had a lot of value, they would receive, uh, the, the owner would receive more money for that person. Now, you got to understand, in ancient times, uh, in this world, about half the population were considered slaves. A lot of people, not just a handful of people. About half the population were slaves. So they really understood this transaction, and they understand this word of redemption, because the concept or the idea of redemption has to do with value. And maybe you've shown up at the grocery store with a coupon, and you've redeemed your coupon, and you've gotten you know, some value for that piece of paper that on the surface that looks absolutely worthless. This is the idea of redemption, That there is a transaction uh, that has taken place. That God has placed value on you. So much value. He said, I'm going to send my son, Jesus Christ, into the world to redeem you. That's how valuable you are to me. So there's this idea of redemption. Now, the third word is atonement. In some of your Bibles, if you've got the ESV uh, or some of the other translations, uh, the, uh, the word is translated propitiation. And that word only shows up a few times uh, in the New Testament, propitiation. 
And the idea behind atonement or propitiation, it goes back to the Old Testament times. And those of you who are reading through the Old Testament, uh, you know how this works. In ancient times, what God's people, the Israelites, did. I mean, have we read about a lot of animal sacrifices and all that stuff? Holy cow, for the love of Pete, they killed a lot of animals, right? But remember that part in the Old Testament where they would, uh, the, the, everybody would gather together and they would gather over a goat. And they would pray their, um, their sins over this goat. They would release their sins over this goat. They would say, goat, I'm taking my sins and I'm putting them on you. And the whole village, the whole community would do that. And then they would say, now go away, goat. Go out into the wilderness. Go on to the desert. You're on your own. Of course, we call that a scapegoat. It goes out and it, it, it escapes. It, 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 it takes our sins out into the wilderness. This is the idea of atonement or propitiation. Something or someone else takes what's on us. We give it to them and they take it away. So I'm trying to think of another way to explain this this morning. So I'm going to try, try another one here. Uh, this water bottle uh, represents uh, my life and my life of sin. And I even thought about bringing water bottles for you all this morning. But I didn't, so you're on your own. But just imagine you're holding a water bottle uh, in your hand. And uh, as you go through life, every time you sin, a little bit more uh, poison goes into your water bottle. And those of you who are younger, you might have less poison uh, in your water bottle, and those of you who are older might have more poison in your water bottle, right? And so over and over and over, as you go through life, uh, day after day, year after year, you've got a bottle full of water. Now, this morning, I've also got a baptismal font here. And in the baptismal font is water, right? And we know that this baptismal water represents the purity of God, God washing us. We think about who God is and his purity, his grace, his perfection, his absolute holiness in our lives. This is God, pure, clean water. And we think about our own lives, sinful, dirty, And God invites us into a relationship, right? So God says, he says, I want, I want to be with you forever. Let's hang out. Let's be together. What would happen if I pour out my life into God's perfect life? What would happen to God? You become polluted, Right? He'd be like me. He would no longer be perfect. He would no longer be holy. Because now God's holiness has mixed with my sin. And this is the dilemma. This is the dilemma of the human condition. How are we to be in relationship with God when I am so sinful and God is so holy and perfect and right? What do we do? The cross. Jesus Christ came as the perfect man, sinless, 
comes and walks on the earth. And he died on a cross for us because we are sinful. And he invites us to exchange roles with him. He says, I'm going to take your sin on the cross, all your sin on the cross. I'm going to just give it to me. This is what you get. Seems pretty unfair, right? Jesus gets all of our sin, and we get all of his perfection so that you and me can dwell with God for all of eternity. I think that's pretty cool. That's this idea of atonement, this idea of propitiation. We're going to exchange out what's bad for what's good. Martin Luther called this the great exchange. So when you're having lunch today with some of your family or friends, and you're talking on the phone, what did you guys talk about at church today? Eh, propitiation, the atonement for our sins. It's just about how God traded places with us. It's pretty cool. He took my sin, what I deserved. And I'm clean. I'm whole. So I want to bring this all together. I don't know where we're at on time. There's nothing else to do today, right? It's raining out. We're just going to keep going. So I am, I'm getting closer, I promise you guys. So I want to bring this all together. In summary, the Apostle Paul saying, hey, there is nothing that we can do to earn the favor of God in heaven. Stop trying. Knock it off. Your works do not matter. The only thing that matters is receiving this grace of Jesus Christ on the cross. The gospel is not, God is good, you're bad, try harder, come back next week, right? I think many of us grew up in that church. Try harder. That's not the gospel. That's semi-Pelagianism. That is heresy. That is a false teaching in the life of the church. The gospel is this. God is good. You are not. Surrender your life. To Jesus. It's that simple, folks. That's where the eternal life comes from. That's grace. That's grace. And so just one more analogy this morning. I kind of want to wrap this up with you. This heresy of Pelagianism, this idea of work salvation. We could break it down mathematically here. There we go. Oftentimes we think to ourselves, well, Mother Teresa, she was really good. So uh, for her, grace is uh, about 80% God and Mother Teresa 20%, right? And then maybe we think of somebody else that we know who's a really uh, faithful Jesus follower. We're like, well, they're, they're a really good person. And so uh, 90% God, but that person still uh, offers God uh, 10% of uh, good works, if you will. And then there's maybe some of the rest of us who are like, ah, 99% God, 1% me. And then there's just some naughty ones out there, right? You know you're bad. You, you, you like to sin, right? 
You're like, you know what? For me, it's 99.99999% God. I'm just, but I helped out that other guy, that guy the other day. I did something good, right? That is heresy. That is semi-Pelagianism. That is works salvation. And we break it down mathematically in all sorts of ways to justify ourselves. But the good news, the orthodoxy of the Christian faith is grace. Grace and grace alone. God brings everything to the table. I bring nothing. Zero. Empty. Not even a fraction of a decimal do I bring to my salvation. I bring nothing. So Martin Luther, for the next 30 years of his life, he continued to preach this idea of grace alone, grace alone, grace alone. And so he preached more sermons than just, it makes my mind explode, thousands of sermons. He would preach almost every single day of the week in a church somewhere, over and over and over. And he kept talking about grace. And the people got sick and tired of hearing about grace. And so one day somebody came up to him and said, hey, Luther, when are we going to talk about something else other than grace? And he said, when you finally get it, because you don't get it, you're trying to justify yourself. You continue to operate with grace plus. It's just grace. It's only grace. So this morning, I want to end with the question I began with this morning in San Diego, California. If you were to die today, how confident are you that you will go to heaven and be with God forever? Notice I didn't say, what church did you go to? How much did you serve this past week? How's your Bible reading going? How much do you give to the church? Good things. Wrong question. How confident are you to live with God for all of eternity? Because you can have that confidence. You can have that assurance. You know that. You know, I think Billy Graham said it best. Didn't Billy Graham always say it best? Amen? Towards the end of his life, this is what Billy Graham said. I am not going to heaven because I have preached to great crowds or read the Bible many times, I am going to heaven just like the thief on the cross who said at that last moment, Lord, remember me. I like that. I'm a thief. I'm a thief on the cross. And I want to invite you to be a thief on the cross too. To look to Jesus. Say, Lord, remember me. That's grace. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you, God, for your word. We thank you, Lord, for um, extraordinary people like the Apostle Paul, like the reformer Martin Luther. I thank you, God, even for that young punk who called me out uh, in San Diego, California, all those years ago. And reminded me of my own heresy, of my own false teaching, of my own false doctrine. God, thank you. You make it so easy. 
You make it so easy to live with you now and for all of eternity. God, we make it so hard. God, we make it so hard because we want to justify ourselves. We want to do something. God, you just come to us. You invite us to surrender. Say, I'm done. I'm done trying to justify myself. I'm just going to receive grace. This free gift of grace. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer.